Welcome, everybody. We're back. It's the fourth season of the Northern Spin podcast. I'm Michael Taylor by day. I'm the editor of Business Desk here in the Northwest. And here's my happy, clappy Tory co-presenter, Chris Maguire, who's never happier than when he's sharing conservative good news. And after last week's local elections, he must be struggling to raise a smile. Well, Chris, commiserations. No, thank you very much, actually. Um, I, I'm conservative with a lowercase c, as I keep emphasising to you. Um, no, thank you very much. I expected you to be walking in here wearing your red Labour rosette. Um, I'm the executive editor of Business Cloud and Tech Blast. There's lots of good news to celebrate. Uh, I know you're a big fan of the monarchy. I can almost imagine you at the weekend pledging your allegiance to the king during the coronation weekend while wearing your union jack hat in your bunton festooned garden well obviously as a news journalist i kept a close eye on proceedings but nothing more than that and as for wearing a red labor rosette it's not the election anymore so i wouldn't be doing that because that would be in breach of the protocol and the rules chris very as clever. you well know very clever very clever now um i'm glad you're back actually because i did think we'd lost you at one point i turned on my uh, i turned on the uh, manchester weekly podcast by our friends at the mill only to hear your dulcet tones with our mutual friend joshy herman now michael how could you how could you how could you play away from home like that <laughs> well I, I regard it as being like a footballer keeping up my fitness levels for the battles ahead um i was flexing my muscles and I'm, I'm surprised you didn't do any podcasts or events outside of the northern spin banner had i have done so michael you didn't get any offers did you had i have done so thing. i would have mentioned you something you singly failed yeah. to do and um, we'll continue in the football theme michael we were contacted by a listener called lauren tish asking how many times you mentioned the blackburn rovers footballer sammy smoddix on the Mills podcast. And the answer I can tell you categorically is zero. So I said, why would I? I said, well, listen, you know, you know, we're just appealing to our readers. So I said, I would give Sammy Schmoddox a mention on our podcast because we at Northern Spring go the extra yard for our listeners. I actually think that Sammy, who, contrary to his name, is actually born in Colchester, I think. Um, I think he won the best newcomer of the year award at Rovers end of season awards. He did. He's also um, been selected to play for the Republic of Ireland because of his heritage. And I met him a couple of times during the course of the season, obviously because I work at Blackman Rovers on match days. And he's won the Peter Jackson, the jeweler, player of the match on a couple of occasions. So I always have to remember to say the sponsors, you see. Absolutely. I get accused of not doing. Absolutely. This I is did. Peter Jackson, the jeweler, player of the match. And what? Sammy's won it a couple of times. He's a very industrious midfield um, false nine, just plays behind the striker. Unfortunately, we haven't got very good strikers this season. But, except, uh, except but he's a good did. player. I like him. And he's a really nice lad. West Ham's season ticket holder. Yeah, well, actually. An yeah. ex-Peterborough United player, which is why Lauren Tige likes him. So people listening to this podcast will be wondering where the political debate is. So, uh, um, but anyway, I thought I'd do that for well, you, Sammy Lauren. Sammy thought the Lib Dems were going to do very well in the local elections when I spoke to him. Right. Okay. Well, well, I'm going to move on to the local elections, actually. And, they, and the Lib Dems did do very well, actually. In terms of today, we're going to be uh, doing a deep dive on last week's local election. We're going to be looking at uh, what it means for a general election as well. We've also got a smorgasbord, one of my favourite words there, of political, business and cultural news. And I'm going to enlighten you on my attempts to be more northern because you seem to have abandoned me. Yes, I have, haven't I? Yeah. Anyway, as we begin season four of the Northern Spin podcast, we simply have to give big thanks to our friends at What Media, who we couldn't do this podcast without them. They expertly produce our podcast every week, but they're also the kings of video content creation. And they turn our weekly ramblings into the hit weekly podcast and YouTube show that is Northern Spin. They make us feel part of their team as well. And hopefully that really, really comes out in the podcast. And on that note, we're going to go to our first interval. Interval. 
So we've got some really exciting plans for season four of the Northern Spin podcast. And if you want to sponsor the show and reach our growing audience, then please get in touch. But first, a local election roundup. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, still big in Ireland. What was funny, actually, we've not done this podcast for two weeks, but we shot up the charts at the weekend to number 31. Great. So uh, thanks very much to our dear listeners for listening to our chat on Blackburn Rovers. Yeah, we're going to do a deep dive on the election, but a quick reminder about why these local elections were so important and what happened. The Tories predicted they were going to lose 1,000 seats. Critics suggested it was a bit of expectation management. They always say 1,000 seats. Which it was. Of course it was, yeah. And I think at the last count, they ended up losing 1,061 seats and control of 48 local authorities. That takes some doing, that is. Um, There was a vote share done that put Labour on 35%, the Tories on 26%, and the Lib Dems on 20%. Now, according to the BBC, this is their projections, um, based on that same, you know, voter projection, it would have made Labour the the biggest party, the biggest winner for the general election, but they would have fallen 14 seats short of an outright majority. So they would rely on some type of coalition. Now, if this was a football match, the bookmakers would be paying out on Labour winning the next general election and Sir Keir Starmer becoming the next Prime Minister. Michael, it's all over. Well, basically, Chris, my analysis is this. The Tories lost everywhere to everyone. And I think... A lot of the polling experts have been trying to replay tw- both 2019, but going back a bit further, 1997, when, of course, under Tony Blair, Labour achieved a landslide majority, having lost the previous four general elections. And I, I think they're making a big mistake in that analysis. The key factor in the, in these elections The clue's in the name. They were the local elections. Therefore, local circumstances have a far greater impact than they would in a general election. I think it's also fair to point out that neither Wales or Scotland took part in these elections. So if you project the share of vote onto a national picture from the areas that voted this time, you're inevitably going to get the position that the experts did. But then you've got to factor in Scotland. So if Labour take 20 seats in Scotland, which is entirely possible, what, about 50 seats? Um, yeah, something like that. Yeah. yeah, and they're doing much better in Wales than they had uh, than they had done previously. And London, which didn't vote. Yeah, um, I think Labour always do pretty well in London, but yeah. there's a few other seats around the edges that they could pick up on. So I think what what actually the local circumstances also had the the effects of suppressing Labour's vote in certain places. It also missed the really massive impact of what's called tactical voting. That's where people vote against the party that they think has the best, that, you know, they vote for the party that they think has got the best chance of defeating the Tories. Now, I think Labour suffered as a result of tactical voting in 2019 because people were very, very motivated to stop Jeremy Corbyn. I think now the tables have completely turned and people regard both the Labour, the Liberal Democrats and the Greens and in certain circumstances, independent hyperlocal parties as an alternative to vote for. What they're not doing, though, is voting Conservative. The other thing I think that's really important to factor into these elections is low turnout. And I think what happened in these elections is that the Tory vote basically stayed at home. It pretty much plateaued and stayed exactly the same. Now, I think Labour's biggest weakness generally in, in, the, in the run-up, both in 2019, 2017, has been that they tend to pile on large vote shares in densely populated cities. I think what this election showed, however, is that Labour can win where they need to and that the Lib Dems can win where Labour can't. Yeah, good insight, good insight. Um, during the two weeks that uh, we were away, I 
found myself listening to podcasts that we did before just so I could hear us together again rather than listening to your voice on a rival <laughs> podcast. Uh, so I listened back to the last podcast when we previewed the local election. Now, there are three elections that I said I was waiting for the results of. Darlington and Middlesbrough in the northeast and Liverpool. Well, you stay true to your um, Manc roots and uh, you picked Oldham, Bolton and Stockport. Now, clearly, there were 230 local elections up for grabs. Um, we're going to do analysis on each and every one of them. No, we're not. We're going to pick the key battlegrounds <laughs> and provide a little bit of analysis before drawing some deeper conclusions in terms of what it might mean for a local election. So we're going to go up north. We're going to go to the northeast, first of all, Michael, to Teesside with two S's. What happened? Well, basically, Andy Preston, who is the independent mayor of Middlesbrough, which is part of Teesside, um, effectively the elected leader of Middlesbrough Council, he lost, right? As predicted, yeah. he lost. I think um, we both called that one. And he was cooked, in fact. That's your joke. I've nicked you know, it from your scripts. Sorry. You know what? He you was know. beaten by Chris Cook by, uh, from the Labour Party. and But that was the only mayoral contest. I don't see the point of these city mayors, to be honest with you. I don't, see the, point like of, I don't see the point of Andy Preston. No. I, don't, I can see the point of the, like, the Andy Streets of the world and the Andy Burnhams. But in terms of the Andy Preston, I mean, that's like, you know, knocking around in the, you know, you know GM in the sort of uh, non-league football, wouldn't it? Yeah, indeed. Um, anyway, Labour is now the largest party on Darlington. Redcar in Cleveland and Hartlepool councils after making significant gains, but they do remain short of controlling a majority on all three. I mean, that's basically because they're coming back from a losing position, you know, in the last cycle of local elections, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's not all bad news, though, for the Tories. No, no, a crumb of comfort you, for you, of course, was the performance of the Tories on Stockton and Tees, where they increased their seats from 16 to 23 to become the largest party, although also short of an overall majority. So what's your in instant reaction? You, you, you did indicate that Teesside was going to be a battleground. Yeah, in the last podcast, I said, I quote, if the Conservatives do badly in Teesside, then the omens for the general election won't be good. It turned out to be a disaster, especially for Rishi Sunak. Potentially, I think the biggest loser of all this is Teesside Mayor Ben Blocker-Houchin, who's getting a lot of stick and a lot of heat from Carol Vorderman at the moment on Twitter. Tees Valley Combined Authorities Cabinet is made up of the leaders of the area's five councils. That's Darlington, Middlesbrough, Hartlepool, Stockton, Redcar and Cleveland. So there are fears that his attempts to push through his new policies, I think he's in his last year of his term as well, could be blocked. The irony. Uh, on the plus side, uh, Jonathan Dalston, who famously took part in that photo shoot, that disastrous photo shoot with Rishi Sunak and Ben Houchin in Darlington, looking into the world's smallest pothole, can now devote more of his time to looking into other potholes. But uh, that's just my views. What's your view? I think Ben Houchin looks very wounded. Um, maybe it's just me, but I just keep reading more and more stories about the trouble that he's in over the South Tees Development Corporation, about the crustaceans being washed up on the beach. None of it looks good. He looks increasingly cornered, and and I just think the political tide is is really turning against him in, in Tees Valley. And I think the problem with Ben Houchin is he's not got many friends from other political parties. He just can't have a conversation yeah. with, with Labour politicians as well. Now he's in a situation where he's going to rely on those people as well. And when he goes around blocking people like me and you and other people <laughs> as well who don't even follow him on Twitter, you just get the impression of a guy who's, who's cornered. And that's the impression that I get. Um, yeah. Then look at the Northwest. Right, so the picture in the northwest wasn't dissimilar to the picture in the northeast as well. More Tory losses, 
and uh, more cho- and more Labour gains. Going to start in my home county of Lancashire, where the Conservatives lost control of Ribble Valley and Pendle, uh, while Labour gained control in South Ribble. South Ribble's Leyland. It's uh, next to Chorley. They lost control, so it became Labour for the first time since 1995. Now, South Ribble is one of my local councils. It's only the second time since the council was formed in 1974 that the uh, local Labour group has had an outright majority. Now, that, Michael, is seismic. Yeah, same in Lancaster (laughs) as well. Um, Lancaster City Council, which also comprises parts of the Morecambe and Loonsdale constituency, that um, is hanging in the balance again. But the big loser on the night was the Conservatives, who obviously have a parliamentary seat in Morecambe and Loonsdale. Boundary changes there don't look good for them. If we head down the M55 towards Blackpool, Labour uh, retained control of Blackpool Council with an increased majority after winning 28 of the 42 seats up for grabs. That potentially could have also so being the legacy of Scott Benton, the Conservative MP, currently an, a yet another one sitting on the independent benches in the House of Commons, having been suspended, having after being exposed for being willing to take money to lobby for a gambling company. I think he's a goner. Yeah, I think Pendle was interesting as well. The Conservatives lost overall control of Pendle Council as Labour and the Lib Dems made gains. The Conservatives now hold 14 seats on Pendle Council while Labour have 11, the Lib Dems have seven as well as one independent. That um, I think that makes it very difficult for the Lib Dems to do a deal with the Tories, but you know, let's wait and see. Um, it must be very painful for you seeing your home red rose county of uh, Lancashire turning red everywhere, Chris. Yeah, well, I mean, Lancashire is a red rose county, so I'm used to it being red. I think in terms of the um, the elections, I think uh, I think the Conservatives got what they deserved. Um, and the message that came across loud and clear, I mean, you hear it every time. If I had a pound for every time, you know, on the doorstep, this is what I heard. Um, but it all came across, everyone said so, on the doorstep. It was national issues that were having a, uh, a real cut through on the doorstep. I think Pendle's interesting because... Um, Three long-serving Tory councillors lost their seats. That's Deputy Leader and Deputy Mayor Mike uh, Goldthorpe uh, in Irby and Coates and Jenny Purcell in Barn Oldswick and Lee McGowan in Marsden and Southfield. So the point is, is that people, personalities, local personalities, local Conservative uh, councillors lost their seats as well. And, and that that would can only be because the, uh, the sort of national picture is impacting locally. Yeah, so let's have a look at Greater Manchester. Like you said, Chris, on the last time that we got together on this podcast, I, I said that the ones to watch were going to be Bolton, Oldham and, um, and Stockport, where I used to work and where I live. So Labour is now the largest party in nine out of the 10 Greater Manchester boroughs, with the Lib Dems just shy of that majority in Stockport, which we'll come on to in a minute. Eight of the boroughs are in full Labour control because the party has a majority of seats, whereas in Bolton and Stockport, they're in no overall control and will likely be led by the largest party. In three elections that stood out for me were the, were the ones that we mentioned, Bolton, Oldham and Stockport, weren't they? Yeah, and I think you can provide some deeper analysis, but I'll just come in with my uh, with my summary. Um, so Labour emerged as the biggest party in uh, in Bolton with 26 seats, displacing the Conservatives who won just 16. In Oldham, Labour narrowly missed, uh, sorry, uh, Labour narrowly kept control but saw their majority slashed. Uh, they also lost their leader, Amanda Chatterton, who lost her seat by just 21 votes, despite the personal backing of Andy Burnham. I actually read a piece over the weekend about this because um, Chatterson said she was a victim of a highly personalised targeted campaign. Um, the fact that she's lost her seat and she's no longer the leader means that Oldham Council will see a change of leadership for the third consecutive year. Not even Leeds United Football Club changed their manager that often. Yeah. Things are so they've elected uh, Arush Shah, who won her seat back, who was the previous leader, 
she's uh, she's now been uh, elected as the leader of the Labour group and therefore the leader of Oldham Council. Yeah, it, I just don't think I just don't think it's helpful for Oldham that they've constantly got this change at the top of their leadership. Um, things are even worse in Stockport, where the Tories lost their four remaining council seats, with the Lib Dems retaining minority control of the council, just shy of a majority. Now, I read, you might correct me, it's the first time the Tories have had no representation on the council since it was formed in 1973. It doesn't look good for the Tories. What's your take, Michael? Yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, the Tories have run Stockport Town Hall in my adult lifetime. I mean, that's incredible. They made the, the significance, though, of the meltdown of the Tories in Stockport this time is this is where they made significant gains from the Liberal Democrats in 2015 by taking the two parliamentary seats of Hazel Grove and Cheadle. Now they have no councillors. Their campaign resources have been depleted, their activists demoralised, and their ability to make their case now severely diminished. Their, the MP William Ragg in Hazel Grove, who I stood against in 2015, has announced he's going to be stepping down from politics. There's been some speculation as to who their candidate will be. Uh, one of the local choices is Oliver Johnston, who has been a Tory councillor. He's now stripped of that. You know, he's not a Tory councillor anymore. So where's, you know, where's his base? Where's his profile going to come from? I think they're absolutely toast. As predicted, the Edgley Community Association won three seats in Edgley after Councillor Matt Wynn, who, um, who I worked with and supported in his campaign against deselection by the far-left-dominated uh, local government campaign committee in Stockport. That was a terrible, terrible mis mistake um, to get rid of Matt. And he's, he's proved what a good campaigner he is by winning on an independent ticket. Elsewhere, Labour did actually did very well against the Lib Dems, taking two of three seats in three wards where they went head to head with the Lib Dem and, um, and fought, off, fought off successfully a Lib Dem campaign in the Manor Ward, which is going to be part of the Hazel Grove constituency in the next general election. Basically, that campaigning deprived the Lib Dems of an overall majority, despite the fact they did very, very well against Conservatives in Norbury and Woodsmore, Bramall North and Bramall South. Do you get the How's that for anarchy analysis? No, it's, it's well, sad, but uh, impeccable. Do you think the Conservatives have thrown in the towel in Stockport? Um, I think they've been battered. They've been absolutely battered. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's because it's, it's, that's, what I've, that's what I find interesting. You know, the fact that, you know, the fact that Labour won in a lot of areas isn't a surprise. Um, but, but the fact that the Conservative vote was so low, what was the turnout? Do you know? Because I think the average turnout was about 30%, wasn't it? Well, the, it's, it's a funny thing that the contested seats in places like where I live in Marple and, you know, is, a, is, is in the 40s. But in some wards like Brinnington and Central, it, it's down into the teens and early 20s. So, I mean, that's the thing with Stockport. It, it looks like a, an averagely prosperous place, but there's huge polarities, both of things like democratic participation, life chances, life expectancy and personal wealth. So, yeah, it's that sort of place. Well, we're going to head to uh, Liverpool. Incidentally, um, just for the benefit of our dear listeners who like you with your accents, um, can you start referring to places with their accent? Okay, so where oh. are we going to next, Michael? Liverpool. <laughs> well, just like we're there. A um, lot of speculation in Liverpool that the... Why didn't you get me to do Stockport? Oh, let's do Stockport then. Stockport. Okay. <laughs> 
Right, I tell you what, I can see why the mill picked you up for yeah, exactly. and didn't pick me up. Um, lots of speculation in Liverpool that the raft of uh, negative publicity around the Labour Party in Liverpool was oh. going to have an impact on their vote. Uh, and there's also a lot of talk that Lib Dems are going to mount a serious challenge. Of course, none of it happened. Um, the Labour Party um, made headlines in the Echo because uh, a number of their past and present politicians got parking tickets waived. There were also a slew of... Uh, other allegations as well. Um, it was an all-out election, 85 seats up for grabs. Labour needed 43 for a majority, but ended up with 61. The Lib Dems ended up with just 15 as well. Now, this was a statistic that really surprised me because, you know, being a Tory in in, in Liverpool is a bit like rock and horse poo. Um, they just don't exist. The Tories got 1.7% of the vote in Liverpool. If you were that 1.7% of the vote in Liverpool, come on the Northern Spin. We'd love to hear your views. It's a bit like those video printer announcements on the BBC when a team gets battered 7-0 and it says 7 and it spells it out. The Tories got 1.7% of the vote in Liverpool. What do you think? Well, I think the Lib Dems are the Tories in Liverpool. I think that's the, you know, you look at where they win votes. They're, they're, they're the more prosperous parts of Liverpool on the edges, places like Childwall. And, um, you know, that's where they've held parliamentary seats before. And I think uh, like Mossley Hill, which David Alton was the MP for many, many years. And, and I think that kind of tradition has, has found its way into Liverpool politics. That's, that's where people who are Tory-minded will, will vote. Because um, it's very complicated politics, Liverpool. But um, yeah, they certainly don't like the Tories. What's your Yorkshire and Humber accents like? Well, the accents vary right across Yorkshire. Okay, right. Because uh, we're going to finish up by doing a whistle-stop tour of the North by going to Yorkshire and Humber. Yeah, okay. So Labour maintained control of Leeds, Calderdale, Barnsley, Kirklees, Wakefield and Bradford. The, the way to say Bradford, by the way, is to put a T in the middle of it. So it's Bradford. You didn't say anything for Barnsley, though. No, I don't mind. Okay. Um, uh, the Lib Dems did well in Hull. It's really interesting. It's one of those outlier places that the, as I've described before, the cockroaches of local politics, once once they're in and once they're embedded, you can't get rid of them. Yeah. And they seem to have done quite well in uh, John Prescott's old stomping ground of Hull. They're like sort of Japanese knotweed equivalents. Once yeah, they're in, you can't get yeah, rid of them. Yeah, I mean, just to be fair, that's not me, you know, denigrating them or, or, or dehumanizing them by calling them that. It is a phrase that I've I've most recently seen um, Tim Farron, the former leader of the Lib Dems, mm. make. So I'm, I'm, it's, not, it's not something I've chosen to use. I'm going to mention one other place, Sheffield. No change in the balance in power, but the, the big talking point was council leader Terry Fox stepping down. He faced a lot of criticism for his role in the tree felling saga. A lot of people dismiss like trees being cut down, but in Sheffield, it's a massive, massive issue. And environmentally now, it played out really badly for them. Um, and it's uh, received lots of scrutiny. So I think once again, it highlights the importance of um, local issues in local elections. And I think that's what the Conservatives are hoping for. They're hoping that, um, you know, that, 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 that local issues killed them off at the local elections. But when it comes to national elections, they won't want Labour to win. And that's why their vote will come out. Um, it seems to me that Labour have gone a long way to winning back the Red Wall seats that the Tories won in 2019 general election. Would that be your conclusion? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I think that's really fair. But the, the, I think the main talking point as well has been the absolute wave of anti-Tory voting in this in this election. I think their record in government, as uh, both under Boris Johnson, Liz Truss, and, and then now, I don't think Sunak's been any in any way successful. I thought he fought a terrible campaign, by the way. Yeah, it was... It, it was, was all a, over the place. Well, I think... I mean, how much of the Tories' poor performance was down to Rishi Sunak and how much of it was down to Boris Johnson and Liz Truss? 
Uh, both. I think, as I said, Sunak's campaign was woeful. You know, it vacillated between small boats, potholes, trying to wage a little bit of the woke culture war, all that sort of nonsense. But basically, the, the, the common factor in all of it is a recognition that the Tory brand is wrecked. It's not Johnson, Johnson and Truss. They basically run out of ideas. They haven't got anything to address. The big big systemic issues that this country faces. More and more people are looking around and going, hold on a minute, why is my 26-year-old still living at home with me? Why can't they afford to get on the housing ladder? Why are they still, why why has my doctor's appointment been cancelled? Why are we queuing up, you know, to, why can't we get a dentist appointment? All these things the Tories said they'd sort out. Nothing seems to have got better. And I think people are just just noticing it and they just see this this sideshow in politics and they, they look at it and think, you're not on my side anymore. It doesn't mean that they've necessarily switched and they're enthusiastic for for Keir Starmer and for Labour. But what it does mean is they're not prepared to give the Tories another chance. I think the thing that's coming out loud and clear with Labour is they asked a question, you know, if you look back on the last 13 years of Tory control, what good things have they done? Um, And you can't think of many, if any. The Tories are like, um, and I think they have done some things, but in terms of actual seismic stuff, policy stuff, they haven't. The Tories are a bit like the teams at the bottom of the Premier League, scrabbling to avoid relegation in a sense. uh, They don't think they can win it on their own, but they're relying on results elsewhere and and uh, and hoping that Labour sort of throw it away. It's worth making a point that you mentioned it earlier, you know, these local elections don't include a lot of areas like Scotland, Wales and London where Labour expect to do well. It really is Labour's to lose. Um, we mentioned tactical voting earlier, so I'm going to go over that as well. Um, Labour registered an above average performance in wards that voted heavily for leave in 2016, many of those in the north. I get the impression that Brexit is no longer the albatross around Labour's neck. Listening to Alistair Campbell's podcast today with Rory Stewart, he thinks that the Lib Dems and Labour should be braver now and start talking about Brexit and fixing the shambles that the Labour Party, sorry, that the Conservative Party caused. So not avoiding Brexit at all cost mentality, which seems to have been Keir Starmer's approach. Yeah, I've made that argument uh, for a while, haven't I? I think we've got to be really honest about Brexit and the harm that it's done to to our country, whether Labour are bold enough to be able to do it because they're in fear of the Tories. You know, don't underestimate their ability to try to re-prosecute the Brexit argument as a kind of a totem of patriotism. You know, it absolutely boils my blood, but unfortunately, I think they're they're more than capable of doing that. Um, if I, I think there's a danger of everyone talking about the fact that Labour had an amazing local election. They did do well. Not well. by you. No, no, they did do well. The Lib Dems and the Greens did well. So who's who's saying that? I think most of the media are trying to run this commentary that somehow the Tories, you know, didn't have as bad a night as they thought. Everywhere I look, it's the BBC trying to be so getting splinters on the backsides, sitting on the fence and peddling this ludicrous argument that things weren't as bad for the Tories. No, I think it was terrible for the Conservatives, but I don't think it was as good as some people are painting out for Labour, especially Keir Starmer. I mean, I would give their local elections a B plus. Um, They are on course to win the next general election, absolutely. But Keir Starmer came out last Friday and said, make no mistake, we are on course for a Labour majority at the next general election with about as much life as the Cupronol advert. The forecasts don't bear out the fact that uh, Labour still needs to achieve a swing bigger than Tony Blair landslide election victory in 1997 to secure a majority at the next general election. I think now Labour need to be super bold, start having policy announcements, which they seem to have been reluctant to have come forward. Um, I mean, you know, they're into the next days now, aren't they? You know, they can't just keep treading water. 
Well, Labour have to continue to make the case that they're serious people prepared to take on the deep systemic issues that I spoke about earlier around housing and industrial strategy, uh, energy, roads and rail, giving people a real chance to, to people in the north as well, and, and actually being serious about changing the balance of power in this country. But wearing your blue rosette, what, what now really seriously, Chris, uh, for, for Rishi Sunak and the Conservatives? It's just about expectation management and minimising losses, surely. I've never noticed that. Nadim Zahawi has been reselected as the uh, Tory candidate for Stratford-upon-Avon, which I can see that being the sort of big scalp that the Lib Dems will go for and win. Yeah, uh, I've never had actually, never worn a rosette, uh, let alone a political rosette as well. Risha Sunak is, Risha Sunak's got, he's, he's got a real challenge here. He can keep saying what he always says, uh, like he can double down on his five pledges to bring down inflation, grow the economy, cut, you know, NHS waiting list, et cetera, et cetera, cut national debt. But the problem is, is that we're not seeing a lot of movement that is winning any of those battles as well. Greg Hans, who incidentally is proving to be something of an election liability, did this car crash interview on L, um, LBC radio where he was, he was, he, he raised these five issues and the, uh, the host said, but none of them are going very well. <laughs> Sunak's personal popularity is higher than his party's. It's also, I think, probably higher. Uh, than Keir Starmer's as well. Um, but like you mentioned, people are talking about the cost of living crisis. People are talking about industrial action. People are talking about weights on the NHS, something I'm going to talk about later as well. These things aren't going away. And there was an idea that actually, when the sun came out, that things would be a bit better for the Conservatives, i.e. if they could get through the winter, they could get through the industrial action, they could get through you know, energy costs, they could get through all this, then inflation would come down and, and, and we'd all feel better, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We're not. Um, since we recorded our last podcast, Dominic Raab finally resigned over the bullying inquiry. Even the way he resigned was awful and it was smacked of arrogance. Um, BBC chairman Richard Sharp finally resigned after his conflict of interest in helping facilitate an £800,000 loan to Boris Johnson. I mean, these are horrible stains on the Conservative Party. Um, the Conservatives sound desperate. They sound desperate because they are. The things that I think people price into the, um, the Tory brand is that, yeah, there's going to be a bit of sleaze. Yeah, they're capable of being a bit nasty from time to time, but they've got, but they're competent. And, and and they're good at economic management. I think all of those are um, all the all the negatives are being highlighted, and all the positives are being massively proved wrong at the moment. I think they're undoing anything positive about their own brand. I think they're sounding desperate because they are, as you said. Yeah. But did you see those videos of Sunak pretending to support some football team in Stockton? He's so fake. He's so false. And it's like his maths idea. This this this. Thing they had that somehow, you know, we need to bring maths back. Get yeah. kids do it. Honestly, my, my wife used to be a primary school teacher until quite recently. And she says the things that the examples that he's using aren't kids studying maths until they're 18 doing A levels or A level maths. It's basically year six maths. So what what exactly is he suggesting? And where is his master plan to get the educational establishment and the, and teachers on board with this plan to, to bring numeracy in, into the equation? I just, equation. See what I, I did. I, I, did I think it's. Um, <laughs> I, I see. What I just you did think it was. A, it was a gimmick that was badly thought through, and it, I think it smacked of desperation. 
when I, um, I, I do a lot of hosting events and uh, I do a lot of um, MC hosting sportsman's dinners, or at least I used to. And I, the first one I ever did, I, uh, I cracked loads of jokes and, um, you know, and they didn't go down very well. Now, you won't be surprised by that. And I spoke to the, uh, the speaker of the day and I said, what do you think? And he said, Chris, he said, your MCing's fantastic, really good. He said, but you're not a comedian. And I said, he, Rishi Sunak, is not somebody who can do these rah, rah, rah videos. He needs to work out what his strengths are. That's not it. Um, I want to talk about the BBC, though. Yeah, what did you think of the BBC's coverage of the local elections? I think the BBC got a lot of criticism. I think a lot of it is really, really unfair as well. And nearly all their criticism relates to their news output. So I think 3% of their output is news. It probably attracts about 97% of their criticism. Um, I decided that I wanted to watch on Friday. I wanted to watch the uh, the results unfold. It was interesting because it was like piecemeal, wasn't it? It was spread over the course of a day. There wasn't any excitement at any one moment. It was um, we go to you know wherever we go to Swindon. Yeah, that's, hard to get that's politics for you, Chris. That, that's sorry. it. So I watched about five hours straight. And <laughs> what the BBC did on BBC One is because I thought the I thought the TV coverage was worse than the radio. They rotated their panels uh, of five experts. Presumably, they didn't want to be accused of political bias. Um, the results were a disaster for the Conservative Party. So the tone was always going to be you know, negative for the Conservative Party, quite rightly as well. What I find funny, baffling, is the choice of panellists that the BBC put on. So everyone knows the Mirror newspaper is pro-Labour, but 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 the Mirror's political editor, John Stevens, is so biased, he might as well have been wearing the red rosette that you might wear. Um, you know, what's the point in having somebody like that on? You know, I want a, I want opinion. I want, I want John Curtis. I want him on my panel. I don't want people like John Stevens, the political editor of the Mirror on the panel. The other thing that I find interesting is the the makeup of the of the of the politicians that the parties put up. So the Tories put up Tory grandees like Andrea Ledsham, Liam Fox, who's been around ages, um, Chris Phillip. Um, the big hitters, you know, the Michael Goes of the world, uh, you know, were kept away. Jeremy Hunts, they were nowhere to be seen because it was yeah, such well, maybe, a... Maybe that's a, an example of them being on manoeuvres. They don't want to be associated with that bad news. These are big political moments and... They don't want to be trotting out the excuses. They want to be there for the moments of celebration. I well, think that's a very tactical decision on their part. But but looked at Labour's um, people that Labour put up. So they're Jonathan Reynolds um, and Liz Kendall, both of whom I think are personal friends of yours, Michael, and Emily Thornbury. Now, I don't know who gives their media training, but other than Jonathan Reynolds and to a lesser extent Liz Kendall, um, the rest just don't come across as very likable. So what's the difference between someone being aggressive and shrill and someone being assertive and passionate? It is usually, no, usually it's their gender, right? Yeah. So I think particularly a lot of Labour women, I'm not saying you're doing it, yeah. right? But a lot of Labour women come in for a lot of criticism because because they are all of those things. You know, um, I've had this discussion recently about Jess Phillips, who I think is fantastic. I don't know her at all, but I'm a big admirer of her. I think she's a, a very front-footed politician. And... I watched the clips of Liz Kendall where you were saying that, that you didn't think that they, she came across as that likable and I thought she was great. And now I might be biased because I've worked with her, I've known her, and, but I don't recognise that description at all. Um, I'm going to do a U-turn, Michael. Go on. I'm going to do a U-turn. Oh, okay. you love Liz now, don't you? Liz Kendall was okay, right? <laughs> Emily Thornbury, um, she, uh, she's horrible. You, I can't warm to her, never could do. Okay, right. Well, I didn't. I didn't see any of the clips of her, so I, I can't comment. But you know, I, I know a lot of Labour people really like her. They think she properly. Um, Jess Phillips, I like them. You like Jess? Phillips? Yeah, she's real. Okay. Yeah, right. Anyway, on that note, let's go for a quick interval.
So one of the businesses I'm involved in is Proactive Progress. Proactive Progress is a monthly meeting of ambitious Northwest businesses who grow through collaboration. Every month I hit my black book. We bring in a big name speaker and share experiences, challenges and opportunities. If you're interested in joining Proactive Progress, contact me. Lots of methods to do that. LinkedIn, Twitter, whatever. Or my business partner, Paul Woods. If you want to grow your business, do it through Proactive Progress. Welcome back to part two of the Northern Spin podcast. Part two is the bit where we call anything to see here. Now, we've been away for a couple of weeks, even though I've been moonlighting on other podcasts, um, but there's a lot of things to catch up on. Y- you seem to have spent your time, Chris, not only watching four hours of watching paint dry and the, ballist- and the BBC's coverage of the local elections, which is admirable in the service of this podcast, by the way, mm. but you've also been reading The Guardian. Yeah. That must have made your eyeballs melt. I've just had a text message actually, actually from Joshy at the mill saying, uh, Chris, you weren't available last week, which is the reason we got Michael involved. Are you available to take part in the mill's podcast? <clears throat> See, I will say no to Joshy because I'm loyal to our Northern Spin base. Um, yeah. That's I another sh- contender for Didn't Happen of the Year Awards, by the way, everybody. So, okay. on, what, 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 so was the it, Guardian, what was in The Guardian? The apart Guardian. from an anti-Semitic cartoon. Okay, no, The Guardian did a story over the weekend saying Labour, obviously, you know, my eyes uh, pricked up to that, has been in my ears, has been has been criticised. Labour, Labour have done. <laughs> have been criticised for, for giving global banks access to Parliament after taking an HSB staffer into their shadow business team. Now, I do need to explain the background to this before you chip in. According to The Guardian, one policy manager from HSBC has been seconded to the team of Jonathan Reynolds, a shadow business secretary, and has been given a parliamentary pass since February. The HSBC staff member works part-time in Reynolds' team, liaising with businesses as well as working part-time for the bank. However, the presence of someone from HSBC has raised eyebrows um, because uh, of the bank's closeness to the uh, Chinese government and the treatment of some of those leaving Hong Kong. This is uh, now, you know, this is a despicable story. Clearly, Labour is working hard to cultivate their business, uh, their uh, business credentials. Anything to see here, Michael? I think no. I know what you're going to say. No, there's nothing to see here. And I, I went to the source of this story for some insights on it, and basically, I anticipated that you picked up on the Guardian story, and. I asked the question whether I was on firm ground making the assertion that this is absolutely not evidence of of Chinese state infiltration of the Labour Party. And yes, that is not what is going on here. There is nothing to see. It's a question of getting resources to mount a credible opposition. Those prawn cocktail offensives, which the Financial Times have written about, about where Jonathan Reynolds, Rachel Reeves, and other senior ministers have been making introductions into the city and winning over captains and and uh, leaders in industry. They don't organise themselves. You need resources. And as a result of Labour doing so disastrously badly in the 2019 uh, election, what's called the short money, which is what opposition teams have to run their offices, has been absolutely depleted. So they have been dependent on getting secondees from the policy teams of businesses. And in this instance, it was HSBC, which is, despite all the bluff that the Guardian and the momentum far left Labour group tried to make the assertion, it is not high level Chinese state 
infiltration of the Labour Party. In fairness to you, it I... Is somebody in an office in Canary Wharf being told, can you go and uh, lend a shift, organising some events and putting together some papers for the man who is likely to be the next business secretary of this country. In fairness, I Googled it to see if anybody else had picked up on that story and nobody had. It reminded me of the time I was standing news editor at the Gloucester Echo and uh, we had a lad called Martin Williams and he wrote this intro, which is council chiefs have launched a high level puddle probe. And I, I read it and I said, what have they done? And they're looking at why puddles are forming in the high street in Cheltenham. There's no story there. Um, I do think on a serious note, Labour have to be careful who they get into bed with. Uh, it's very easy to dismiss this as a non-story and I think we both agree it's not much of a story. Um, but if you look at you look at the history of the Conservative Party in the way George Osborne and David Cameron got into bed with the Chinese, that um, that the the whole Northern powerhouse was largely predicated on Chinese money. That's not ended up very well. Um, that's not the only story I spotted in the Guardian. Actually, uh, they did an expose about one of the Conservative Party's rising stars, uh, Bim Afalami. Apparently, failed to declare he was paid two thousand pound a month to chair a pressure group lobbying Rishi Sunak called the Regulatory Reform Group of MPs. The Guardian say he may have exploited loopholes to say to stay within the rules, but unsurprisingly, Carol Vorderman hasn't pulled any punches. She's basically on the warpath against anything conservative. Um, now, Bim Afalami has kept a low profile on Twitter, which I always think is interesting. This comes on the back of uh, our friend Scott Benton. Anything to see here, Michael? Yeah, I think there's lots to see here. I thought you'd say that. No, it's it's more evidence of uh, of Tory malpractice and hiding things. Mm. Yeah, no. and, and fair play to Carol Vorderman for calling it out. You know, uh, it plays into the whole thing around Richard Sharp. You know, I I watched, I listened to his podcast, not a podcast. I listened to his radio um, resignation speech, and I just thought. You're getting in your excuses early. I, I, I thought it was terribly stage managed. Richard Sharp, this is leaving. Yeah, the BBC. absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Thing is, but you know, he would. He was. He was tone deaf in the first place because he should have resigned months and months and months ago. I thought it was interesting that Gary Lineker um, stuck to his guns and said that he'd still speak out about things he felt passionate about. And he said that uh, the next chairman shouldn't be selected by the government of the day, whichever government is in power. Yeah. Anyway, let me throw one over to you. The cabinet officers accused Partygate investigator Sue Gray, civil, very senior and respected civil servant, of failing to cooperate into the inquiry about her discussions with Labour about her new proposed role as Keir Starmer's Chief of Staff. Is Do you think there's anything to see here? Absolutely, definitely, yes. Uh, couldn't be more <sighs> categorical. Um, I also think Sue Gray has become a political football, so she decided to take her football home so no one can play. So she said, I'm not going to cooperate. And actually, I don't blame her. The Tories missed a massive trick because they kept accusing her of double standards over Partygate, including uh, the likes of Boris Johnson. She wasn't the one having the parties during lockdown. It was a Conservative parties the conservative party just needed to own that and say yep yeah, sorry uh, but what they did is they then uh, you know william reese um not where reese mark um and co then started like hinting on gb news and stuff that it was all some sort of conspiracy theory and she had a vested interest not true um however keir starmer does need to say when negotiations when gray started over a new role they have to and the reason is that civil servants are supposed to be impartial now if sue gray's talking you know in, in darkened corners over a new role with the Labour Party, then Keir Starmer has to say when those conversations started. I don't think it made much of a difference, did it? The, the Tories tried to weaponise the whole, um, this whole conversation. I think she was quite right not to participate in it because what we saw was confidential uh, statements that people were giving to those inquiries being leaked to 
the chairman of the Conservative Party to be weaponised in a week before an election to make it look like Labour was up to no good and that the civil service is part of this blob of kind of anti-Brexit, metropolitan, liberal elite. And you know, once again, it's just the Tories trying to paint this them and us picture that there's, that there's an alternative establishment that they're constantly fighting against within the civil service. They tried it with the Dominic Raab stuff to make out that you know there were senior civil servants who were basically laborish people who'd gone rogue. And I just don't think it's working. Keep an eye out on Cabinet Secretary Simon Case because uh, he's under a lot of pressure at the moment. Um, he's only young. He's only in his 40s. Um, we're both in our 50s. The best civil servants are the ones you, uh, you know, are, are, uh, you know, shouldn't be seen or heard. They, 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 they operate in the shadows. But every controversy in the government, whether it's Boris Johnson, Liz Truss or Rishi Sunak, Simon Case is in the mix somewhere. He's either extremely unlucky, lacks backbone, lacks talent, or he's simply not respected. Um, I think he's on borrowed time. He could be packing his cases Oh, see what we did there. Very good. Uh, the other thing I want to mention is it's six years since Andy Burnham became the mayor of Greater Manchester. You know, I think it's fair for us to discuss that, not over and above any other metro mayors in the north of England. We are, in fact, the northern spin, not the northwestern spin, uh, or the Manchester spin. Yeah. But um, I think it's fair to say that he's the most high profile of the metro mayors. He was, of course, crowned King of the North during uh, our lockdown in 2021. But he's pushing three agendas in his uh, anniversary statement that he gave out yesterday, skills, housing, and transport. And I wanted to pick up on one particular idea where he's delving deep into the territory of the Department for Education to say that Manchester should have its own curriculum for young people to have the opportunity to pursue the non-university route by following what's called the Manchester Baccalaureate, the MBAC. Now that to me is really ambitious and it's real devolution in action. Also taking control of the buses and trains and changing how we get around, but none of that is without risks. What do you think? Do you like that? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I like Andy Burnham, uh, not as much as you, but um, actually, given the fact uh, that what, he is... What don't you like about him? Well, given the fact, incidentally, that he is the King of the North, it was uh, apt that he should have been there at the coronation at the weekend. Uh, the King of the North, that the, uh, the, uh, the, you know, the King of our country. Was he uh, there? Yeah, he was there, yeah, together with Tracy Braben and um, uh, I think Oliver Coppard was there. In fact, quite a few of the, uh, the mayors from the North. I don't think Blocker Ben was there, but <laughs> I could be wrong. But Ben, if you want to come on the show and tell me otherwise. Yeah, I think the well, thing I is... Tried to look at his Twitter account to see if he was, but he's blocked me, so I couldn't. Yeah, uh, yeah I, listen, I think the thing is with um, Andy Burnham is Andy Burnham has, if you were marking him for his first six years, you'd give him a good B, wouldn't you? Um, he's dealt with, a, a, you know, obviously started with a bombing. Uh, he's dealt with a lot of uh, challenges, dealt with COVID. Um, but I think you need to see some, 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 some significant things that you can hang your hat on and say, these are significant changes that Andy Burnham has brought about. Um, and uh, the jury, in my opinion, is still out on that. Let's talk about... Well, it's not, Chris, because the jury's been back twice, which is the electorate of Greater Manchester, and he won every single council ward. Like, no political leader has ever done anything like that. I could, I could win. So that's standing. the jury. I could, I, could, I could win if I stood as a Labour candidate. No, you couldn't. Yes. No, you couldn't. In Labour. No, yeah, because in Manchester. I stood in all of those wards when I stood for Labour in 2015, in all of those wards, and they were hard fought and hard to get people to vote for Labour, even whatever their instincts are. But Andy Burnham overcame all of that. So yeah. I'm afraid the jury has been out twice and come back with a resounding, yeah, yeah, he'll be in a good mood anyway because uh, Everton beat Brighton 5-1. Um, there you go, changing the story again. <laughs> so, Chris, who do you think's on manoeuvres? 
Well, the first name I'm going to give you is Penny Morden. Now, she's a leader of the House of Commons and she ran for the Conservative Leadership Contest last year. I actually thought she might win. She certainly would have done a much better job than uh, Liz Truss. She was pictured at the weekend wearing a teal Kermit dress. Kermit the Frog would have done a better job than Liz Truss. She was, she was pictured wearing a teal dress and a cape at the Westminster Abbey coronation ceremony, carrying the sword of state and giving the jewelled sword of offering to the king. Labour's Emily Thornbury tweeted, the sword bearer steals the show. Oh, you Not like Emily Thornbury now? Well, I like, I like that comment because I thought that was quite funny. Well, maybe um, she's quite good at comms after all, Chris. Well, she just, well, maybe she's quite good at comms when you don't have to hear her voice um, crowing <gasps> all the time. No, fact, fact. She crows. She crows. She's just not a very likable person, in my opinion, but we're, we're entitled to disagree. Apparently, Morden has been doing press-ups uh, in the run-up to the coronation, so she could pair for carrying um, that sword. Um, definitely on manoeuvres. What I find quite funny, actually, is that uh, she's now being tipped to be the next Conservative leader. Well, I found the whole thing really unedifying, if I'm honest. But fair play to her for taking the job seriously. But the idea that she'd make a good Tory leader because she held up a sword for an hour is absolutely laughable. No, but actually, you know, that would be a much better way of finding the next Conservative leader than going out to the members for seven weeks and doing all these hustings. <laughs> if you can hold this sword yeah. above your head, whoever's holding yeah. it for the longest, you know, then then you are the new leader. I think there might be something in that. Go on. So um, who else is on manoeuvres? Well, a few weeks ago, you spoke about your frustration and anger at political grifters. Now, my definition isn't the same as yours, but uh, I think they're a group of, uh, I think there's a group of, odious political characters who had nothing uh, of any value to the conversation. I'm going to give you two names. The first is Darren Grimes, who describes himself as Twitter's favourite Conservative commentator on GB News. Wow, his parents must be proud of that. Twitter's favourite Conservative commentator on GB News. What a claim to fame that is. The second name, mentioned it before, well-known socialist Owen Jones. What a waste of space. He keeps appearing in my timeline. Now, their politics are different to, to mine, obviously, and they're different to each other's. I think they're equally... Um, uh, unpleasant individuals. They're constantly on manoeuvres. They don't know when they're not on manoeuvres because they're always on manoeuvres. What do you think? Well, hold on a minute. I mentioned Owen Jones last time that we uh, we looked at political grifters. I held him up as the example of the political grifter. He doesn't appear on my timeline because he blocked me after he organised a pile on, on me. I'll talk about that. Yeah. Um, I thought in our grifter chat, by the way, I set you some homework about another grifter, Matthew Goodwin, academic from the University of Kent, your patch. Yeah. Did you read any of the articles that I told you about, about his about the metropolitan woke liberal elite who dominate the institutions? Well, I just want to give an insight into our listeners. You know, I send you uh, messages on WhatsApp, which are encouraging. You send me messages back saying, have you read about Matthew Goodwin? And I, I'm a bit sick of it, to be honest with you. So in the end, I thought to myself, you know what? I'm going to read some of these articles articles um and these will it? be these will be the articles about why are uh, you sick of me suggesting a talking point for our podcast well no you're mentioning matthew goodwin because matthew goodwin you know he he's, he talks about this new lefty elite running britain uh and they hate you because they think you're a racist now he's peddling these claims in a book and i think to myself i think why would i want to read about matthew goodwin um you know i'd rather pull out my eyes with toothpicks <laughs> Then listen to him. I mean, this is a guy who's trying to create noise to try and peddle his book. You know, why are we giving him airtime on our award-winning list podcast? <laughs> that will change. We will win a podcast. We will, actually. I think yeah. we should enter some awards. Yeah, I think yeah, we very should. Very good. Um, well, I was giving you the encouragement to just kind of broaden your mind and read some other ideas because, you know, you're a self-described small-c conservative. Yeah. So I'm encouraging you to look at some, the ideas that are percolating on the conservative uh, 
uh, right of politics. So, yeah. well, I don't see anything wrong with that. I don't like I was, Matthew. I was genuinely interested in your view, and now I've had it. I thank you for it. Okay, and okay. I agree with your view. Okay, now I'm going to uh, I'm going to revisit uh, someone that we've spoken about on, on manoeuvres before. We're going to go into the world of business. So Matt Moulding is a CEO of THG, formerly the Hutt Group. THG have got a kick in from the city, uh, from investors, from the media, ever since they listed in uh, 2020. I mean, they listed with a share price of 500p. Uh, last time I checked, I think it was about 110. It might have gone up or down since then. He turned 51 earlier this year, like me, a bit wealthier than me, in fact, a lot wealthier. Um, he, um, he resolved to hit back at his critics through LinkedIn. He's been at it again. Uh, last week, he took a swipe at the London Stock Exchange for not spotting the financial irregularities at Sheffield Tech Firm. One dis go i actually quite like his approach because i think it's important that um you know he puts his side of the story forward do you think he's on maneuvers um yeah clearly yeah yeah he's clearly on maneuvers i like his approach from the perspective of being the editor of a business news website because i literally described thg and his outpourings on linkedin as the gift that keeps on giving because every time he opens his mouth and then we will do a pod we will do a uh, a news story based on what he's been saying particularly when he attacks city regulators or hedge funds or the media um it, it's one of our best read stories people are lapping it up it's soapbox it's I sometimes describe him as the as the Logan Roy of Northwest business because he's he's absolute um, catnip it, he for was. people who are interested in business stories. He makes it come alive. He makes business seem interesting. Yeah. It's one of the things I wanted to go onto the Mill podcast to take to to talk to them about is because I think that they they kind of got this moral high ground that they're the you know the sole bearers of the torch of journalism. I'd say, meanwhile, guys, yeah. in the business world, yeah. there's the likes of me and thee. You know, we're we're um, we're doing proper journalism. We're you know we're ringing people up and we're getting stories and angles and and doing the odd investigation from time to time. That, that's and, and business is where there's a lot of life and, and action. Personally, though, I think for his own end game, and this would probably more applicable on a finance podcast than a political one. He's been advised to focus on the numbers by his activist shareholders, inform investors better, and stop the twaddle. Now, he's right about Wang Disco, which is a, a company in Yorkshire, which has been the victims of a massive fraud that nobody seemed to have spotted. But none of that actually changes the optics and the facts about why the value in his business has gone down. He's done a lot of other things. He's got Charles Allen, the former head of ITV, as his chair, which he was told to do because he was holding both the chair and the CEO roles, which was really bad governance. He's hired Sue Farr, who was the director of marketing at the BBC in the time when I used to report on the BBC. And he's done some really smart affinity deals globally. But I do question how much traction that his operating system, what's it called? Is it Infinity or something? Infinity, like? something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, has had. Um, so yeah, Matt Moulding, one to watch, definitely. Uh, incidentally, he was our best friend story by three to one when we did the last story about yeah. uh, talking about when Disco. I don't know what the background was about when Disco, other than the fact that their numbers were completely awry. So I know there's various investigations into alleged fraud and stuff. It doesn't look good. I know they've cut their staff numbers yeah. as well. You've got somebody else that you want to stick on, on manoeuvres? I do, finally. It's not a person, it's an organisation. So with the CBI in absolute disarray, that's the Confederation of British Industry for all you people who aren't in any way, shape or form, vaguely interested in business. The CBI is in absolute tatters. Uh, the Director General has had to step down following some very serious allegations about his personal behaviour towards women. And a rival organisation, Make UK, used to be known as the Engineering Employers Federation, they're on manoeuvres. There's a new report out this week which is making the point that UK manufacturing is an essential contributor to the nation's economy with 
206 billion of gross added value, employing 2.6 million people across the UK. But this country does not have an industrial strategy. I think that's a good point to make. I think Labour does have an industrial strategy and the Tories do not. And I think they've found a perfectly good time to make that point. Do you think Do you think um, they're trying to take the space at the CBI vacating? Yeah, completely. Yeah. Right. So are the Chambers of Commerce. So for a lesser extent is the FSB. Everybody will be vying for attention now. We've had, we've had Martha Lane Fox, who's the president of the British Chambers of Commerce, using her column in the Times to make the case for the Chambers to say, yes, CBI, time's up. Move on. Jog on. Now, should we go for a break? Let's go for a quick break. So I've always believed that a vibrant media sits at the heart of any community. And the business community is no different. So if you're in business, then the businessdesk.com is for you. We're up with the lark every morning to bring you the day's business news. We have regular events, credible news, and lots and lots of other events to bring people in the business community together. So log on now, thebusinessdesk.com for all your regional news. final part of the Northern Spin Podcast, part three. This is the fun bit where I know you want to talk about something very close to home, Chris. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So the the you know, two-week sabbatical worked out very well for me because uh, I've got a um, sick relative and I wanted to go down and see them. We spent a lot of time talking about striking nurses, striking doctors in recent weeks. I'm going to leave the political stuff to a different podcast. Um, but uh, a, a relative of mine has spent two weeks in hospital. Um, you know, don't be in any doubt, the NHS is absolutely bursting at the seams. You know, my relative spent 30 hours on a chair before a bed became available. This relative's 86. I could list all sorts of problems around social care. There isn't any. It's the reason why people are spending so time, so long in beds. I could talk about Brexit, the difficulty in recruiting staff as well. I'm not going to talk about that. I'm not ignoring it. I'd want to praise the caring and compassionate staff that I saw at every level. You know, every day they start their day at the bottom of a mountain and all they are hoping to do is get to the top of the mountain, get people like my relative into a bed, knowing that when they get to the top of that mountain, there's a bigger one to follow. You know, it's hardly surprising that uh, morale is at such a low. I, I was just in awe of them. And genuinely, I, I, I think um, whether you believe in the rights and wrongs of the strike, I certainly me personally don't agree with the uh, you know the demands of the junior doctors for thirty five percent pay rise, but in terms of the actual dedication, compassion that the uh, NHS showed to, uh, certainly showed to my relative. Uh, thank you. Oh, well said, Chris. Yeah, um, and my thoughts go to you and your family. Yeah, yeah. We've both covered uh, a story in the last couple of weeks, um, you know, quite extensively. It's about the uh, troubles of Manchester-based fintech open money. Uh, now, credit where credit is due. You broke the story. I think you were walking with your wife when you uh, uh, your eyes uh, were, uh, were drawn to something happening at the ABC building. Is that right? Uh, yeah, kind of. So um, open money, which is a Manchester-based fintech business, um, 
basically hit the buffers. They couldn't raise any extra finance. Um, they were losing a lot of money and they couldn't keep up with the amount that they were spending compared to the amount they were bringing in. So eventually, yeah, it went bust. I mean, the numbers just don't stack up, do they? I mean, they're no. losing £9.3 million a year. They were generating only a smidge over half a million. They were relying on multi-millionaire Duncan Cameron to keep funding it. He decided at the end of March, having warned he was going to do this, to stop, uh, he's going to stop funding it. And when the music stopped, there just weren't any seats to sit on. Yeah, I mean, I feel, I feel sorry for their suppliers and their staff who will have lost their jobs in all of this. But um, sometimes when something seems too good to be true, it usually isn't, I'm afraid. There's something else that happened which I think we should mention on the podcast. Um, it happened a couple of weeks ago. I saw your piece on LinkedIn about the demise of the big issue in the North. We don't talk about Gary Neville like we used to, but you wrote a really interesting cover article about Gary Neville uh, in Big Issue in the North. Very, very sad day for the North that uh, that's no longer here. Yeah, it was really sad. And I, I went and bought my um, my last copy from my vendor in the centre of Marple yesterday. It was a sad day. Did you know that the magazine was started here in Manchester by Ruth Turner, a good friend of mine, who then went on to work for Tony Blair in the heart of government and then for his foundation. And she's now head of something called the Forward Institute. Mm. Mm. I didn't I didn't know that. No. Anyway, it's it's also sad, particularly sad, not just because it because of those reasons, but it, it's another quality outlet for journalism gone, which I know you and I care deeply about. I'm particularly sad for Kevin Gopal, the editor in particular. I recommended for him the him for the job to the chair of trustees all those years ago. And he has done such a great job. Kev would be an asset to any media organization that wanted to utilize his skills. And he's just such a passionate advocate for the North. And he also gives such a voice to, um, to people who, uh, who wouldn't normally have a voice, which through the page is a big issue. He's also been prepared to do some fairly meaty investigations and take on some people who need taking on. And I think they've, uh, they thought he'd be a bit of a pushover and he's nothing, he's nothing of the sort. Well, credit, so anyway, credit, what else have you been up to, Chris? Well, yeah, well, um, credit to Kevin and everybody involved in Big Issue North. Um, I was invited to a lunch. I don't tend to go to many of these because I get quite, in, I get quite a lot of uh, sort of uh, invites. But I was invited by Napthins. Uh, they shared an event with uh, with uh, HSBC, uh, where the speaker was HSBC economist Mark Beresford Smith. Now he's a fascinating man. He lost his eyesight. We were talking uh, at the age of four, um, and uh, he's sixty four. He's going to retire fairly soon. Actually, now um, he said he gave this speech, and it was a wonderful speech. I congratulate them afterwards. He said that our number one priority when it comes to the economy is getting the inflation down. He said we can't get the growth that the country so desperately needs until we get the inflation down, which is the reason why the industrial action and the pay strikes are so potentially damaging. He said that uh, until we get that in place, we're not going to get the sustained growth. That might not happen, not this year. That might not happen until 2025. At the end, they said, uh, Has anybody got any questions? There were two questions asked both of which were by me. The first one was this. Um, if Labour come to power, um, you know, what do you think will happen? And his view was quite interesting. He thinks actually it'll be less disruptive Labour coming to power following the Conservatives than it was when uh, Theresa May took over David Cameron because the because although they're one party, they're very much different leaders. So there's a lot more disruption in the Conservative Party. Um, I thought that was quite interesting, actually. Yeah, good. What was your second question? Well, the event was on the day that Burnley played Blackburn Rovers at Ewood Park. You'd have been there, uh, hoping to clinch the championship uh, at the home ground of their arch enemy. Now, our mutual friend and massive Blackburn Rovers fan, Ian Coey, was in the seat behind me. So I asked uh, Mr. Barrowford Smith who would win. He's a Reading fan in Stan. He's just been relegated. He successfully predicted that Burnley would. 
Uh, so, sorry, Chris, can I just put you up on something? So Mark Beresford-Smith coming to Lancashire, he's from HSBC, right? Yeah. Is this evidence of Chinese state intervention <laughs> in the economy in Lancashire? Yeah, quite possibly, quite oh, possibly. Right. I'm going to phone my friends at The Guardian because I now read their newspaper. <laughs> now, actually, listen, I'm going to come back at you, actually, because, um, you know, you're talking about your appearance on the mill, like 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 you're spreading the word of the Northern Spin. And, and I actually, on a serious note, I think it was great and I enjoyed the podcast as well. So thank you very much for that. But, you know, you getting blocked is becoming a habit. Now, the fact is that me and you both got blocked by Ben Houchin. Ben Blocker Houchin. Ben Blocker Houchin for no reason because we didn't even follow him. Now you're being blocked by, by Stockport's Labour MP, Nav Mishri. Now, I can only assume you've offended him. Don't know. <laughs> Maybe it's well, you. Are you? Well, it, are you blocked by no, him? No, I've not been blocked by him. I've not been blocked no. by him. So you can, you can, you know, you can dress this up as you want. You have been blocked by him, uh, Nav Blocker Mishra. I haven't, um, mm. but clearly, clearly you're playing that with a straight bat. Um, I'm also want to challenge you um, about a review that we've we've uh, received from a listener in Belgium. Uh, goes by the name of Tika Marina, which sounds like a drink. I googled it, couldn't find anybody by the name of Tika Marina from Belgium. Don't know if it's a male or a female, but our average review is 4.9 out of five. But Tika gave us is either a two or a three. Wrote the following: I quote about our podcast. So much potential. But such a shame. The one presenter who supports Labour is a coward. I'll just repeat that. Coward. And can't give as good as he gets. I Always. think they're talking about you. <laughs> no, no, there's more. Um, and Always wants to change the story when well, anything negative about Labour comes on. That's you. No, they're talking you, about no, you. No, you do that. Then, then, then what's the point? Just makes it look like he's scared the party can stand up to rigorous scrutiny bracket which I believe it can and that the only reason to vote Labour is that they are not as bad as the alternatives which isn't the case That's what you real say. pity as he's doing a lousy job promoting the Labour Party and its cause now clearly I'm not trying to promote the Labour Party now there's obviously an issue here as to whether or not you're being castigated or I'm being castigated but in my defence this line real pity as he's doing a lousy job promoting the Labour Party and its cause no wonder he supports Blackburn Rovers you made that last I bit made, up. <laughs> yeah. I made that last bit up. Uh, Michael, okay, assuming that's about you and not me, what do you say? All I'll say, Chris, is I'm really pleased that people are listening to and reacting to the show. And I hope that our discussion here has answered your point, Ticker. Okay. Anyway, okay. I'm particularly delighted to hear that not only did you celebrate your 51st birthday on Tuesday, yeah. but you've revived your attempts to become a little bit more Northern. Tell us all about that. Yeah, actually, also worth mentioning, another story I picked up in The Guardian, that uh, Liverpool and Manchester have been described as really strong contenders uh, to be the new home of the national uh, of the English National Opera when it leaves London. Um, obviously, Liverpool's hosting the Eurovision. I know you'll be having a Eurovision uh, party at the weekend as well. Look forward to that. Look forward to my invite in Leafy Marple. Um, in terms of my renewed attempts to become more Northern, my daughter is hoping to becoming an actress, and she had a show recently about Northern Soul, which I went to watch. Well, you'd be very proud of me. Um, I also watched the drama about Raoul Moat on ITV um, called The Hunt for Raoul Moat. He became Britain's most wanted fugitive after he went on a run for seven days in and around his native uh, Newcastle before taking his own life in a standoff with armed police in July 2020. Now, a lot of people have hero worshipped uh, Raoul Moat. Uh, he murdered one man. He shot, a, uh, shot his former partner uh, through a window, blinded a policeman who subsequently took his own life. He's not, who he, uh, subsequently took his own life. Raoul Moat's not a hero. Um, He's he, he was a vicious murderer. Um, really interesting TV program, which 
got quite a lot of criticism actually, but there's a clincher, right? Okay. This is how Northern I am. I came across TV gold, Scott and Bailey on ITV. Now this is a series. There were five series. I think it was made by the Red Production Company who were based here in Manchester. They've done a lot of great shows actually. And they had five series yeah. of Scott and Dr- Bailey. by an amazing woman called Nicola Schindler. Amazing. Amazing. Yeah, absolutely. Um, they had five series between 2011 and 16. So I am very late to the party. It was written by the brilliant Sally Wainwright. That's what got me interested. It focuses on the personal and professional lives of detectives Janet Scott, played by the wonderful Leslie Sharp, and Rachel Bailey, played by the equally wonderful Susan Jones. Used to be on Coronation. Is that right? Yes. Okay. Uh, Used to be on um, Coronation Street, actually. Uh, She's brilliant. Um, They're members of the major incident team, MIT, of the fictional Manchester Metropolitan Police. It's brilliant. And one of the great things about it as well is you get to see all these scenes around Manchester when buildings were still there or, or in the process of being built um now michael i've i think i've raised the card i think i've raised the level of cultural offerings to a new level from me which isn't very hard what uh, can you offer me but in return well obviously i've been absolutely glued to the current season of succession oh there we go i witnessed the most incredible scene acting between the characters tom and shiv which anyway that's all I'll say. If you're not into it, then okay. you know what you're missing. I found a copy at Marple Station in the little book swap area. Emily Maitlis's book, Airhead, which I've really, really enjoyed. And it's a, an account of lots of her interviews that she's done over the years. It's really, really well put together. I've just read the one about her encounter with Simon Cowell. She's also met Donald Trump, Bill Clinton, Emma Thompson. Absolutely brilliant. You're a really good writer. I'm listening to another brilliant podcast from Jamie Bartlett, who did the Missing Crypto Queen series. And this one's called Believe in Magic, which is absolutely mind-blowing. I watched a series on Sky called A Town Called Malice over the previous bank holiday weekend, which is basically El Dorado with swearing, right? Yeah, which no. is what my co-presenter on my music radio show, Neil Summers, came up with. Do you, re- do you remember El Dorado? Yeah, I do actually. Yeah, yeah I do. And actually. This has got lots of swearing in it. So yeah, you what's nicer? Like it. What's nice is how you mentioned your co host on your music show, but when you appeared on the mill, I didn't get so much as a name check. But anyway, no, I'm not right. bitter. Yeah, okay. It's also got lots of cool 80s pop music in it. So there's another reason for you not to like it as well. Well, uh, that's it. Episode one. It's a bumper episode of season four of Northern Spin. Yeah, if you want to sponsor the podcast, get in touch. Nine of our most most downloaded shows are from season three. So we are growing. We're on Apple Podcasts. Please review us. Don't forget, forget to press the subscribe button. Follow us on Twitter at Northern underscore Spin One or watch us on YouTube. Thank you to What Media for providing this podcast, for recording this podcast. Special mention to Elliot Taylor for providing the music. My name is Michael Taylor. My name is Chris McGuire, available on all good rival podcasts to appear.
We are back, season four, episode one of Northern Spin is back. I've been reunited with my good friend and compatriot, Michael Taylor, who, whilst I've been away, has been recording podcasts with a rival. But he's back. He signed the loyalty form to me, and I believe he's committed to the future of the Northern Spin podcast. We talk about the uh, local election roundup. Uh, we give some analysis on that and what it means for the local election. Sorry, what it means for the general election moving forward as well. Uh, we also ask, what has Penny Mordant, uh, the politician, and uh, Matt Moulding, the founder of THG, got in common? We think they're on manoeuvres. And Michael has been blocked by somebody else. That's Northern Spin. We're back. It's the fourth season of the Northern Spin podcast with me and Chris. Now, I've obviously upset Chris with my moonlighting for other podcasts because he properly rips into me right through this bumper edition of the podcast. That's when he's not slobbering over his fanboy crushes over Penny Morden, <laughs> Emily Thornbury, and Matt Moulding. But amidst all of that, we've got some great local election insights. We look at who's on manoeuvres. We also ask, is there anything to see here with Chris's other current obsession, bizarrely, reading The Guardian? Reading The Guardian. It's all right. 